Welcome to the episode nobody asked for. <laughs> Not even Josh or Ryan. They were like, no, thank you. And we were like, you're doing it. That's Izzy. That's uh, that's Jackie. And that's Ryan and Josh. Why, hello. Hello. The people we married. Bad decision. A horrible decision, really. <laughs> On everybody's They were account. all arranged. <laughs> Probably. I don't know. He was charming in the beginning, and now look at us. That's how they get you. <laughs> like wearing pajamas for four weeks straight? Yeah, yeah. I don't leave the house. Ryan's like, all right. To be fair. I mean, I, I have either. a job, but. To be fair, I don't. I don't leave the house either. You so. gotta get like this close, or you're gonna yeah. sell. scoot in. It's okay. Oh my god! Do you love me? Like you can get close. It's okay. Mm, I don't know. You are having us do this. <laughs> I don't know. I'm do so you glad love me? Ryan's here. <laughs> so I don't know if we said this on the podcast, but um, I'm going to. I'm applying to a college, a university, to get my degree in forensic psychology. So that's exciting. You're gonna use that degree for the podcast strictly, right? I'm going to use my powers for good. So for this podcast and only this podcast, <laughs> like you can't get a job. That's out. I think she's just trying to figure out how to kill me and get away with it. <laughs> that's not psychology. Probably. I'm just saying, listen, she does research on this quite a bit. And oh, we specifically do unsolved cases. So I'm pretty sure I have most of forensic files memorized and I don't even watch the thing. <laughs> Pretty sure I could quote Bob's Burgers word for word now. Yeah, but that's not going to help me kill you. I don't know. It might make me look in- criminally insane. Burgers. High, high cholesterol. Self-defense. <laughs> I made you a lot of french fries. I'm going to need you to sit down and finish all of them. Right If now. you loved me, you would eat these french fries. <laughs> well, that's why you give me all the extra food that you don't eat. Shut up. No, not at all. I'm trying to convince mom to take some forensics classes with me. Mom would and be good at forensics. Yeah, she would. That was but my original major before I was like, how much math is involved? Oh, no, thank you. Math's easy. Just have Ryan do uninvited from this podcast again for the second time. Math's easy, though. <laughs> so do I have a murder for you? Oh, are we, are we jumping into the murders? Have we had enough? This five minutes of banter is officially too much. Like, Did you have something else to say? Uh, just hit your face is not? dumb. Oh, got him. Got him that dead. was Ryan, everybody, her husband, in case you can't tell the voices apart yet. <laughs> I think we're officially at 400 listens for our podcast, so that's pretty exciting. That is so exciting. That was almost our whole high school. Yeah, honestly. Your whole high school had 400 kids in it? I think it was five something. We went to a county school. I mean, the graduating class was like 127 or so. I think my graduating class at high school was bigger than your entire school. Probably. Didn't you didn't you live in like Portland? Not when I was in high school. You have to remember, I'm real old. Oh, okay. Uh, so I graduated in 2007. I was living in North Carolina at the time. Oh. Yeah, Jackie so. likes to remind me that she was like 12. I was like 12. <laughs> Casually seven years before get Jackie and I graduated. All right, get out. You're uninvited again, this time by Josh. Adios. I didn't say that. Listen, I did. I did for you. You're welcome. He's the other male in the room. If he leaves, I have to leave. Oh, no. That's not how it works. That You're not excused. terrible. Oh, I accidentally clicked the disconnect button. Oops. Male I'm having technical difficulties. I don't have a long murder today. 
I have a I do. She oh, says now I see this is, pages this of is, notes. Okay, listen. I researched like four murders. All right. Okay. I already, I've always got some backups. Okay. So don't pay attention to what is do written in the notebook. backups have backups? Maybe. Why? Shut up. Anyway. <laughs> So I think I found the most recent case we've ever done. And it was after this podcast even started. 49-year-old Suzanne Morphew took a bike ride in Chaffee County, Colorado on Mother's Day of this year. Oh, wow. This is recent. So May 10th of this year. And she hasn't been seen since. That's like post-corona times. Yes, it is. Okay, let's get into it. Um, She vanished, obviously, like I said, on a bike ride on May 10th. And the only thing the police were able to find after her neighbor reported her missing was her bike and a personal item. So the police haven't obviously said what it was yet. And it was found during a search of an area near her Maysville home. So So, personal item. I'm voting water bottle. Maybe, or maybe like a cell phone or something. Who has a cell phone these days? On a bike ride? You can't just ride a bike and not listen to music or something. It could be like a backpack too, right? I mean, she could have just had her headphones wireless from her backpack or something. Or a fanny pack. Although, who actually uses one of those nowadays? Fanny packs are in right now. Yeah, fanny packs are making a comeback, Ryan. because Gucci made one? No, Gucci made one because they're making a comeback. Fanny packs are cool, all right? They let you carry and that's- stuff hands-free. I don't... They're good. They're cool. Mm. They're Gucci, if you will. And that's basically all the police know about her disappearance. Her husband says he believes authorities have handled the case poorly. There were surveillance cameras in the area of their property... Police deputies have started to ask people to save videos from two days before May 10th, the day she went missing, and two days after specifically. But we don't know if anybody has come forward with any of those videos yet. Investigators still have not released anything about anyone who saw Suzanne last. Investigators are also ruling out foul play in her disappearance, and the FBI and CBI, the Colorado Bureau of Investigations, are also now aiding in the search. Did you say they ruled out foul play? They are not ruling out foul play. Okay, I was like, listen, this lady hasn't been found. You have no idea why you... Since she was seen, the community have been tying teal and yellow ribbons along the route she would have taken on her bike. So starting on the road that leads from her family's property to where her bike was found. The investigations team is saying it continues to push forward on the case, but they're keeping all of their updates under wraps. No arrests have ever been made 
in connection to her disappearance, which is strange because it's been, what, four months now? Yes, four and a half months even. According to the Colorado Bureau of Investigations, no searches for her have been conducted since July 9th. Well, I mean, and at her- some point you gotta just be like, we've been searching for three months, maybe she's not here. But does that but- mean there's no traces of evidence there either, though? Because that's what I would be worried about. But I think the most obvious thing about this case is her body was not found with her bike or her personal item. So if it's really just an accident, why wouldn't she be with her bike? Exactly. So it's foul play. Was she biking on like a mountain trail or something? Or was it just on a side road somewhere? Her bike was found at the bottom of a cliff. Well, kind of a cliff. A woman by the name of Juliet Fitzgibbons, who's an avid biker from Denver, talked to People Magazine. She said that she has doubts because she says, and I quote, I don't know why the husband won't speak out, right? Any info is good info if you're trying to find out what happened to the mother of your children. She said she missed seeing the ribbon, which indicated where Suzanne's body was found. And she said, I wish there was a bigger memorial here. A store manager in the town where Suzanne and her husband and two daughters lived was describing an encounter that she had with Suzanne's husband. She said somebody knocked on the window and it was Barry Morphew, the husband. And she said at... May 12th, so two days after his wife went missing, at about 8 p.m., came by and wrote a note on the back of a receipt that said, baby blue bike, helmet, biking, clothing, and that's it. That was his description of his wife that he gave to that store manager two days after she went missing. He didn't bring a picture or anything, that's it. And the store manager even, she said, quote, he went to write down the description of maybe what she was wearing. I thought it was weird because he didn't explain the color of her eyes or her hair or anything about her, like how tall she was or anything. He didn't even put the color of her clothes or the helmet. Yep. Baby blue bike, helmet, biking clothing. That's all he wrote. So let's talk a little bit more about the husband. Investigators first showed up to his house on May 21st. That's 11 days after she went missing. And stayed there for three days looking for any sign of Suzanne. One of the neighbors next to a construction site that Suzanne's husband owns, because he's a contractor, said investigators used tractors and special equipment that could see through the cement, which is interesting because the investigators aren't updating the public on anything that they found. So for them to look into a construction site after everything probably means that they're finding something that's maybe hinting at that direction. I'd say that's a fair assessment. Yeah, it sounds like he has the tools and the means. Uh, The neighbor said investigators had equipment. They were digging quite a few places. They had conferences. They also had probably 10 to 20 people investigating. They searched the whole place, the garage. They had all the cement and they tore about half of that up. The neighbor said while her memory is sharp, her hearing is going, and that's why the loud noise she heard in the middle of the night on Mother's Day weekend sticks out in her mind. Mother's Day weekend being the weekend Suzanne went missing. She said at the very first thought, I thought it was a truck or something maybe parked in my driveway, but no, it kept running and coming from the same direction over there, and I had been hearing all of this noise for quite a while. She thought it sounded like one of them running, and I sat up in bed and said, it's one of them, what's going on this time of night? That's ridiculous. And thought maybe they had orders to move it or something, so she lay there listening, and it kept going and going and going for about half an hour. Eventually, she got up to check, and as she opened the back door, it stopped, and she thought maybe they were just moving something or whatever, so I did not go out and investigate. 
I'm a nosy enough neighbor, I would have been like, what the fuck? I would have been banging on that door like, excuse me. She even asked the construction workers if they left keys in the equipment. She said the workers told her they did leave keys behind, but they kept them hidden. Probably up in, how did they do it in the old days, in the visors of the the old cars that they just flipped up? Yeah, it's completely hidden. Nobody can find them. (laughs) Is a 100% original hiding place, Jackie. I don't know what you've been seeing, but no one else has done that ever. (laughs) So... A 5,000 square foot home is what is being constructed next to the neighbor I was talking about. And it should be completed by January. Can when we investig- all agree that that house is going to be haunted as fuck? Like, maybe. But they didn't find, when invest, I don't know if they didn't find anything. But when investigators left the search site, they said they did not make a connection between the area and Suzanne's disappearance. And since then, the sheriff's office has not said anything more about the search publicly. We kind of mentioned this earlier, but the husband for the first few weeks never said anything to the media. Like he would refuse all, not interrogations, interviews. Ha! That's it. And he just didn't talk to them. So normally, it's very strange for missing persons cases. Normally, the family is talking to the media, pushing the case, trying to get the investigators to look in like certain areas and giving up everything that they know. So I'm not saying that that's pointing towards his guilt or not or anything, but it's interesting. It's interesting. I mean, everybody grieves in their own way. So maybe he was just grieving and didn't want to have that public eye on him. But I will state that if Ryan went missing and I wasn't out there like somebody knows something, you bring him home right now. I probably am the one that killed him. I'm just letting you know. To be fair. Everybody take note of that. When Barry started talking to the police, he said he described where Suzanne's bike was found off of County Road 225 near their home and the condition in which it was found. He said there was something. I'm sorry. So he found the bike? No. Okay. The police did when they were searching. This is the husband describing the bike when it was found. He said something was wrong with the front wheel, and then he changed the subject and started saying something else. So this is the interviewer describing the husband, describing what how the bike looked like when it was found. So kind of confusing, but we're getting into it. The husband was describing that he was talking about having a job in Denver, and it's very out of the ordinary for him. But he didn't tell him if he had joined in the search for his wife or not. But the interviewer said he thought he saw Barry searching the day before with the police. He said he was wet, cold, and distraught, and he looked like he was out searching or doing something. The closest homes to their property are vacation rentals, and they were all unoccupied on the day she disappeared. And the interviewer goes on to say, quote, I was quite shocked with how liberal he was with this information, giving one theory after another. And I was trying to process it all in the moment, like, what is going on? And I don't understand. Why is he telling me all of this stuff? And I thought at one point he would just stop and say, who are you? And that was the gist of it. And what do you think? But he was just on a roll and I didn't say much. Detectives with the chaffy I'm pretty sure that's how you say it. County Sheriff's Office said they obtained a second search warrant to return to the Morphew property on July 9th, but they have not released any details on what they were looking for or what was found. Two search warrants. During a second interview the husband had, he theorized over what might have happened to his wife. He said there is a possibility of an annual animal attack, an accident perhaps with someone on the road, or even a run-in with someone who knew her well. But he declined an in-person interview and said he did not want a recording of the call to be aired. 
He said he's continued to search for Suzanne, despite the public's apparent perception he isn't doing enough. It's interesting that, like, they would think there would be an animal attack based off of, like, where the bike was found and then describing the bike as being almost destroyed. That is interesting. I looked up, like, where they think it potentially happened. It's, like, very wooded and mountainous. It's, like, a super rural town in Colorado. So I don't know that it would be too out of the ordinary for an animal attack. But Do they have cats out there? Like, cats would make... A lot of bears and mountain lions and stuff, yeah. I thought you meant a house cat, and I was like, Ryan, a house cat can't destroy someone's bike. I, what? In the wilderness, yes. A random house cat. You just said in cat. In the wilderness <laughs> and is going to attack a person that's on a bike, presumably going up or down a hill. That's a really interesting mental image. <laughs> Garfield doesn't like bikes. Also in the interview, the husband said, My wife and I have been in love since 1988 and she's the love of my life. And I continue to search for her every day, and I will until I find her. I promise, and I promised my girls that. And then he talked about his family's faith and about God and stuff. He said, we don't know why God does what he does, but we have to trust him. And then to end up to end the interview, he said, I'm afraid of what's out there. People don't know the truth, so they're going to think what they're going to think. But CBI agents have asked Barry to take a polygraph on two separate occasions, and each time he has turned them down. Barry denies that he was ever asked to do a polygraph. He said there's nothing that he's hiding. He's given about 30 hours of testimony to the FBI and the CBI, and he said that he's answered every question they've asked him. But he also said that he he did admit an inconsistency in one timeline he had provided to investigators. He said it was only because I didn't know the time that I did something, a mechanical thing, to my bobcat. He was confused, and he just found out that his wife was missing, and he was a little bit not in his right mind when they were asking me these questions. But I did the best that I could, and I answered everything. I never once declined an interview. Barry, at the time of his wife's disappearance on Mother's Day, was out of town. He said he was out of town, and his daughters were camping with friends. Barry says a big concern of his is the way in which the Chaffee County Sheriff's Office has handled this investigation. He says the Sheriff's Department screwed this whole thing up from the beginning and now they're trying to cover it up and blame it on me. He said my buddy was right there after they found her bike and he said they completely destroyed the evidence and he tried to stop them but they wouldn't listen to him and said this is not CSI. There's no evidence for the investigators to see you because the Sheriff's Department completely obliterated it. And like I said, their family previously stated Barry was out of town in Denver when his wife went missing. Again, Mother's Day. Maybe that's what she asked for. Time alone away yeah. from her husband and family. Can, can you all just leave me alone for one weekend? Like that's. Enter her brother. So the brother of Suzanne Morphew is starting to launch an independent search, I think last Thursday, for the remains of Suzanne, who he thinks was the victim of foul play. Her brother says, my sister was murdered. His name's Andrew Mormon. Mormon, M-O-O-R-M-A-N. And she was hidden within a three and a half hour window. So I can draw a circle on that and tell you she's within that circle. And that's what I know happened. He says, I just want to find my little sister. I want to bring her back home and give her a proper burial. Hundreds of volunteers from Colorado and other states are helping him. So there was a GoFundMe that was started to help the costs, but it raised almost $13,000 as of last Thursday. A bunch of people volunteered to walk through those mountains to search for her. 
They're going to look at nearby lakes. I say will. I keep forgetting this is in the past because this article was written before everything happened. So they looked at lakes with boats and sonar equipment and used search dogs and drones to find any clues as to what had happened to her. He said he was going to be looking in four specific areas using satellite images to guide them. He said he was going to get results. The brother had actually had something to say about Barry's animal attack theory and says that if it had been attacked, if it had been an attack by a mountain lion, there would have been some evidence of it. But he also doesn't think she left the bike where it was found. He said you couldn't have ridden off that cliff without being severely hurt. There certainly would have been evidence of injury at the bottom of that cliff and there was none. So I believe the bike was picked up and thrown over the hill by human hands. I mean, that's a good theory. Anyone with any information on this case is urged to call the FBI tip line at 719-312-7530. And that is the story of Suzanne Morphew's disappearance. I just want to talk about my sources real fast because I was looking at a few different articles. So there's an article by Lauren Scharf on Fox 21 News, also on Fox 21 News. A second article by Lauren Schaff and Sarah Hempelman. And People Magazine had a couple of articles that I read. The first one was by Harriet Sockmensur. And the second one was written by Casey Baker. Well, thank you for citing your sources. I thought that was a really good story. And I am kind of happy we did one so recent. Especially one that's got so much unknown uh, to it. And I really hope that... The police make some progress in the case soon. I know they don't really share a lot of information that goes out about new cases, but this one's five months old. So I was kind of surprised that the, I don't think they even talk with the public about finding the bike. I think it's kind of interesting that like this could just be a scenario where she just like decided to uproot her entire life and was just like, I'm just going to fake my death, but it could also be a murder, but it could also just be an animal attack. There's just like not enough information, which just leaves your mind wandering i don't know that it would have been an animal though because i feel like it would have been messier like there would have been blood or something nearby yeah there would have been tracks of some sort especially because it doesn't seem like it was very long before she was reported missing and i don't know maybe it's just a skeptic in me but i really am looking at the husband on this one because the police isn't saying anything to the public about any evidence they're finding and the fact that they've gotten two separate search warrants for his house and are digging up a construction property he's been working on. So I feel like they have some evidence. I mean, they have to, right? You wouldn't just have a second search warrant if you didn't have a reason to go back. Like They don't just hand out search warrants. You have to have a good reason to need one. Yeah. And how sad. I mean, I feel like most moms, if they were alone on Mother's Day, I feel like that doesn't Well, I guess our kids were out of the house, but I feel like even once they're out of the house, don't husbands normally do something for Mother's Day or does that just stop when they leave? I'd I'd assume so because it's the mother of your children. You'd still be like, hey, thanks for everything you did. I'm going to be honest. I have no idea, though. I also don't know. Food for thought, though. I'm sorry if you hear any noise in the background. I guess people are shooting fireworks off outside of our house. You know, September 26th, everybody's out there celebrating on the streets. Okay, anyway, sorry. I just found this, and I want to say it again before this episode gets uploaded onto our podcasting sites and stuff. But 
I told you last Thursday there was that big search that Suzanne Morphew's brother was leading. Well, he came back and there's this been there's been this big update. So her brother said, I'm afraid this is domestic abuse. Barry Morphew was not participating in that big search at all that her brother organized. And he was carrying a shotgun to keep people off of his property. Andrew Mormon, the brother, said that the search team found evidence near the Morphew residence on Thursday, but could not be more specific about what it was. He said that the Colorado Bureau of Investigation and Sheriff's Office are processing the evidence. He said, yesterday we ran into Barry Morphew as they crossed the mountaintop of where we found the evidence, and he was out hanging trail cams, and he had a shotgun on his shoulder and warned us not to go any further because we were about to enter private property. And to answer your question, no, he's not involved in the search, end quote. They asked him what Andrew Mormon thought happened to Suzanne, and he said, I think she was abducted. I don't think she ever got on her bike. I think she probably died Saturday and she was hidden somewhere Saturday night and we're pushing forward. And that's the theories that we have right now that seem to be correct. When they asked him if he thinks Barry Morphew was involved in Suzanne's disappearance, he said, I'm afraid this is domestic abuse. He said that while searching for Suzanne, he learned that she was working with domestic abuse meetings. Andrew also said he believes police are trying to fill their envelope before they seal it. There was a candlelight vigil that Thursday, or I'm sorry, that Friday night at 7, a pastor spoke to the group, as well as Andy Mormon, Suzanne's brother, who had organized the search that we're talking about. He said, the city is wonderful, the people in the city is wonderful, and everything they've done is just amazing. He said, a killer walks in their streets, and their children aren't safe. The news crews did not see Barry Morphew, Suzanne's husband, at the search or the vigil. These last two articles were also from Fox 21 and Fox 31 News by Christo Wittiak, Kate Singh, and Amber Jo Cooper, Dara Bittler, and Webb Staff. Hi everyone, it's Izzy here, and if you didn't know, I'm the one of us that's responsible for editing and uploading our podcast, and I just wanted to let you know about Anchor. It's the easiest way to make a podcast, and just to clarify, it's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. I like to use it because for me, it just makes everything so simple and easy. And it is the best program that I have found to help upload and find sponsorships. And it automatically distributes it for me. There is literally nothing that I have to do in order to get my podcast onto all of the listening sites. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. You can record it right from the app, right from your phone, anywhere. It's convenient, it's easy, and best of all, it's free. Where's my phone? Jackie, did you take my phone? Probably, you can't trust her. I know.
Asleep with one eye. One eye open. You change your passcode every other day just in case. Wait until she goes to work to actually go to sleep. <laughs> You're all dumb. I disagree. Actually, I agree, but we're not dumb in this case. Anyway. So, I have a story to tell you guys about the metal band, I'm just kidding, called the Servant Girl Annihilator. The Servant Girl Annihilator was active in Austin, Texas from late 1884 to Christmas Eve, 1885. The serial killer was also known as the Austin Axe Murderer, which also sounds like a metal band, I think. Mm -hmm. The Austin Axe Murderer. There's also some speculation that this murderer is the same person that carried out the Jack the Ripper murders that took place in London, England, starting in 1888. But since that's so long ago, I don't think we're ever going to prove that. It's just speculated. The first victim was Molly Smith, a young African-American woman who was employed as a cook. She was discovered on December 30th, 1884, in the snow outside of her employer's home. She had a gaping axe wound in her head. She had also been stabbed in the chest, abdomen, legs, and arms. With the axe? I think just with a knife. I don't don't think if you're axed, it's called stabbed. I think it's just called axed. So the murderer had two weapons? Yeah. That's oh, it gets impressive. worse. It gets worse. This is one of eight, by the way. One of eight weapons? There's more than eight weapons. Anyway, <laughs> it was said in one article that these injuries created such a large pool of blood that she appeared to be floating in it, which... Jesus. If I'm going to get murdered, can someone just, like, one stab wound in the right spot? I don't... I don't want this to happen to anyone. The next victim was another African-American woman that was employed as a cook... Her name was Eliza Shelley, and she was found on May 7th, 1885. Shelley's head was struck with an axe so hard that it was almost split in two. The third victim was another African-American woman. Her name was Irene Cross, and she was attacked on May 23rd. She was practically scalped and stabbed multiple times with a knife. The thought of being scalped is just terrible. During this time, the short story author, O. Henry, gave the killer his name. He also gave a horrible, horrible quote in a letter to his friend. The quote is, This town is fearfully dull, except for the frequent raids of the servant girl annihilators who make things lively during the dead hours of the night. I personally wouldn't call murders lively, but hey, that's just me. The next victim, and this one is uh, really bad. It was an 11-year-old named Mary Ramey, who was dragged outside to a wash house, raped and stabbed through the ear. On August 30th, 1885. Through the wow. ear? Through the ear. <laughs> My ears hurt just thinking about it. Uh, the fifth and sixth victims were a couple. Their names are Gracie Vance and Orange Washington, both African-American people. They were found with their heads bludgeoned, and the Austin Daily Statesman stated that Gracie was almost beaten into a jelly. They were murdered on September 28th, 1885. So... Before we get to the last two, where the MO kind of changes, you can kind of see that this person up until this point was kind of preying on African-American people who had just gained their independence and entered the workforce, and it was very violent. But the last two murders are different. On Christmas Eve, 1885, the murderer committed two separate crimes on different locations, so he committed both of these murders on the same day. The seventh victim was a woman by the name of Susan Hannock. Her head was cleaved in two just before midnight, and it was determined that something sharp had been put through her right ear and into her brain. So again, with the ears. 
The eighth victim was 17-year-old Eula Phillips. She was murdered about an hour after Susan. She was raped. Her arms were pinned down by lumber, and her, her head had been crushed with an axe. And that's the last murder. Uh, there were no more murders, obviously. It was the last one. Over 400 men were arrested on suspicion of being the killer in 1885. 400 men. So I think that's the entire town. Yeah, that's a lot. None were ever charged. This included Walter Spencer, the boyfriend of the first victim. And I quote here, two suspicious looking white brothers that were found with blood on their clothes. I don't know why those two weren't convicted, but apparently they were set free. Uh, Eula's husband, Jimmy Phillips, and Susan's husband, Moses Hannock, were both arrested because they believed that the husbands were copying the other murders in order to kill their wives, but that was never proven. There are two different actual possible suspects. One possibility is that the murderer was a Malaysian cook named Maurice who worked at the Pearl House Hotel. Maurice told friends he planned to travel by ship to London and left town in January 1886, which is right after these murders took place. Supporting evidence includes that all but two or three victims were in the same area as the Pearl House Hotel and that he left town the same time the murders ended. In a 2014 episode of History Detectives, a theory was proposed that a 19-year-old African-American cook, Nathan Elgin, was the killer. He was shot by police when he dragged a girl out of a saloon he was drinking at in February of 1886, uh, which is about the same time the murders ended as well. I would just like to give details on what happened a little bit. So Nathan was drunk and enraged for some reason. Witnesses have no idea why, but he dragged a woman named Julia from the saloon to a nearby house where he could be heard beating and cursing her while she screamed for help. The commotion caused the attention, I'm sorry, the commotion caught the attention of the entire neighborhood, including police officer John Bracken, who went to stop Nathan along with the bartender Dick Rogers and neighbor Clabe Hawkins. They got Nathan into the front yard and Officer Bracken went to handcuff him, but Nathan knocked him off his feet. Nathan then went to attack the officer with a knife, but the officer shot him before he could. So there's theories that this man was also the one responsible for the murders because obviously he had violent thoughts towards women, but it took place in the 1880s. I don't think we'll ever know for sure. It's also theorized that as Austin, Texas was being constructed during this time, the killer may have been a construction worker who was moved to a different area in early 1886. And that is the information on the Servant Girl Annihilator. So was this before or after the Jack Ripper killers? It was about two years before. Hmm. And the first guy went to England after this? Yep, he went to London like immediately after the murder stopped in January. Interesting. Interesting indeed. Mm-hmm. It's still crazy to me that like the person just always carried an axe with them. Like they were just roaming the streets with an axe and nobody was like, hey, Maybe you shouldn't do that. Well, I mean, it's the 1800s. Everybody had an axe because that's how you heated your house. Like, your house. Yeah, but, I mean, like, but you can carry you just... it around with you. But it's we don't know that the axe was being carried around. Like, everyone had an axe, so the killer could have just been like, oh, I'll just grab theirs. And, like, if you just went out to your like front porch and saw your axe was covered in blood the next morning. Well, he could have disposed of it. <laughs> Well, that and, like, if he's splitting someone's head, like, nearly in half, it's not like, 
a hatchet they're walking around with. They're walking around with like a fireman's axe. <laughs> yeah. A fireman's axe. Like a heavy like duty a piece of equipment. Two handed. Yeah. So yeah, that was the, the murder I had to tell. Um, I guess the takeaway from this episode would be to never get married and uh, look out for people with firemen's axes. I mean, I like my marriage. <laughs> Where did all this don't get hey. married stuff? Josh, stop messaging her while we're talking on the <laughs> podcast. I do want to say thanks, everybody, for listening. If you like our podcast, please, 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 if you listen to it on Apple Podcasts, go ahead and give it a review. Even if it's not a good review, any feedback is good feedback, um, which you're not going to hear most people say, but we don't know if there's issues unless we hear about it. You can also send us an email to ucsfpodcast at gmail.com. And follow us on Instagram at ucsfpodcast. Or Twitter. Or like us on Facebook also at ucsfpodcast. And if you like what we're doing, you'd like to support us, please feel free to support us on Patreon at ucsfpodcast because we could always get better equipment and it would allow us to really spend more time on this and to really just make sure we can do a thorough job. And yeah, that's all I have. Do you have anything else? Bye. 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 Bye.